Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rivenis. And as you probably can already tell by the sound of my voice, I've been under the weather with a nasty bug for the last few days, and I apologize in advance for having to listen to someone who sounds like they're about to keel over in their chair. <laughs> now, whatever your political leanings, no one can argue that the presidential election hasn't been entertaining, at least in a locker room peephole way. The issue is being brought up, whether it is Sanders on the left with his economic equality message or Trump on the right with his immigration restriction talk, are not new to America in any way. These have been contentious issues for the last 150 years. We're going to go back today to one of the most famous incidents of the 19th century to the Chicago Haymarket Affair. It's also been called a riot a massacre, and an incident, which shows just how much politics can play in defining history. Throw in a bomb, and this tragedy becomes even more relevant to our modern times. I'm pleased to have with me James Green, author and professor of history at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He's here to talk with me about his book, Death in the Haymarket, A Story of Chicago, the First Labor Movement, and the Bombing that Divided Gilded Age America. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. Happy to be here with you. The story of the Haymarket Riot is so much more expansive than the event itself. The movement that led to the moment is important to understand. Let's start by going back to May 1st, 1865, almost 25 years before the Haymarket event. Can you talk about the significance of this date? Sure. Well, I begin my story there, and uh, uh, that happens to be the day that uh, Abraham Lincoln's body came back to Illinois. It's kind of a long connection between that and what happens later, but I think there is one. 
And uh, I got the idea of starting the book that way from Carl Sandburg's biography of Lincoln. Um, and, you know, the whole city was uh, unified in grief, as he put it, this great liberator had, had died. And, of course, this is where Lincoln had started his career. It's where he got his nomination and for presidency in 1860. So I began there because it's a, it's a very dramatic, and it happened to be on May 1st which struck me as an extraordinary coincidence because there are four other important May 1sts in the book, in the story. Um, and what I wanted to do was set up Lincoln's sort of dream of a, a society with malice toward none and charity for all. And that at that moment, Chicagoans and Americans might have believed they could attain that. And, and what happened in the next 19 years in Chicago was that the Lincolnian ideal was uh, subverted by class conflict and avarice and uh, many other vices. Uh, so that gave me a chance to write a, the, 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 the subtitle of the book is The Story of Chicago. So I wanted to take the readers through that and realize that whoever threw the bomb at Haymarket in 1886, this did not come out of the blue. I mean, there was a long history after Lincoln's death of contention and conflict and strife. The eight-hour movement plays a really pivotal role in the story. Can you explain what the eight-hour movement was? Well, it's on the one hand as simple as it sounds uh, to us now. You know, eight hours should be the legal, and I'm going to emphasize the legal uh, length of the working day. But, but in the 19th century, during Lincoln's presidency, during the Civil War, a man named William Silvis, who was a head of the Ironmolders Union, and a, a machinist named Ira Stewart, began to see the, what they call the eight-hour system, uh, as more than simply a reduction in hours. They believed that with more free time, workers would become more involved in the democracy, that they would become more uh, entrepreneurial, more successful in their personal lives and escape economic lives, escape the drudgery of wage labor. They really saw the eight-hour system as a way for workers to escape wage dependency or what in those days was often called wage slavery. There was no cost of living increases <laughs> in the wages, and employers believed there was a, a wage fund that was static, and they couldn't really uh, change it. So, in, in a sense, it was um, an acceptance that uh, wages were going to differ, and that highly skilled workers would get more money, but that everyone could benefit from the eight-hour system. And uh, this became extremely popular in 1866, Marx and Engels wrote about it and said uh, how impressed they were by the movement in uh, the eight-hour movement in the United States. So it was a, a kind of liberation strategy for these men, and it peaked in 1866, and then the second May Day comes along, which is when the Illinois uh, law is supposed to be implemented, the very first eight-hour law, May 1st, 1867, okay? two years after Lincoln's assassination. And the employers uh, oppose it. They bring out the military and uh, there are riots. Workers are suppressed. And even though the governor had signed the bill, the eight-hour bill, the uh, employers refused, refused to honor it. So this was a moment that passed when employers and public officials and workers and unions could have all unified around this new law. But instead, employers uh, 
rejected it and subverted it. And that was a, a real um, lost opportunity for the nation. You know, it was one of those moments when people could have cooperated and instead they went their own, the employers went their own way. Why was Chicago such a hotbed of anarchist activity in the 1880s? Well, that's, that's not an easy question to answer, but um, the, the first answer is, or the first possibility is that it was dem- demographic. There were, I think, and you can check the book on the facts for this, uh, maybe 250,000 Germans living in Chicago. There were more Czechs than there were in some Bohemian cities. So there was this huge concentration of European immigrants who, who, who brought many, who, I wouldn't say a lot, but just enough of them brought with them uh, socialist revolutionary ideas into those communities, and they were tolerated. Even German businessmen were sympathetic to a degree to the workers' demands. So, so demographically, uh, there was a huge pool of people from Europe who, who are not yet Americanized, who had not yet become sort of part of the population that believed in where everyone was supposed to believe in private property and law and order. You know, they were, they were orderly people, but they had their own culture. And within that ethnic culture, a radical activity flourished. So that was one, one idea. The, the other is that Chicago experienced a bunch of social and economic traumas uh, that helped radicalize people, particularly the, these, these immigrants. And particularly the Chicago fire was the first one where the fire itself seemed to bring everybody together as a disaster often does. But then when they started to distribute the relief funds that had poured in from all over the country, some elite Chicagoans took charge of that and created a lot of resentment among the poor survivors about how those funds would be distributed so distributed so that radicalized people in fact albert parsons who came up from texas where he was a champion of reconstruction well, we can talk more about him later but that's what radicalized him was this injustice of of the elites not giving relief equally or giving relief to poor people but demanding that they show themselves to be workers and embrace the work ethic and this kind of thing the final reason is that there were enormously talented activists like Parsons who came to the city. They might have even been attracted to Chicago because of all the potential for uh, movement building. But they, these anarchists were very, very talented, effective propagandists. They were great writers in German. They were great speakers. They were great orators. And they were, depending on how you look at it, uh, either fearless or reckless. <laughs> Uh, willing to take big chances. So so that's part of it. The police play a role in being um, provocative, you know, provoking people. They shoot some Germans who are meeting in a the union of cabinet makers, and this creates a tremendous outrage in the German community, and more people become socialists. Or, yeah, it, it, kind of confusing terminology in those days. This anarchists call themselves socialists. But there were, there were really two kinds of socialists. One believed today in, in the government creating more equal economic conditions. And the other branch of socialism, which later would be called anarchism, is a, a one in which the state would be destroyed and that people would govern their own communities without the, the state and its courts and its army and its police. Can you talk about the Chicago stockyards 
For those who haven't read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, it is hard to imagine such a terrible place to live and work as the Chicago Stockyards. Yeah, pretty awful. Well, Jungle is a very widely read book, so many do know the story. But yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> it almost defies explanation, description, because it was such a vast and uh, in some ways horrifying place. Rudyard Kipling was one of the visitors from abroad who just found the whole thing appalling, you know, these butchers bathed in blood and these all of these uh, cattle being slaughtered and cut up. And, uh, you know, I the thing still existed when I was a boy uh, living outside of Chicago, but I never went there and anybody, you know, anybody wanted to go there because it created such a stink and they were burning things. And it was a kind of a earthly version of hell, uh, and yet the Chicago meatpacking industry, the slaughtering industry, is tremendously powerful. Armor and Swift and these these fellows made uh, great fortunes because the refrigeration and various other changes in the food industry and the opportunity to ship via railroads meant that you could somebody in New York could eat bacon that was produced in the stockyards in Chicago. The uh, stock would be driven to Kansas City and places like that and then put on trains and brought right into South Chicago where um, the animals would be slaughtered. So there there are many, many um, graphic descriptions of those yards and uh, they're gone now and people don't have any idea of how horrifying the work was there. And the workers were sometimes rebellious about it. In fact, in, in the jungle, Jurgis becomes a socialist at the end of the story, as I recall. Can you talk about the Knights of Labor? They play a, a prominent role in Chicago's social movement during the time. A mysterious organization. They were, they're thought of as a labor union, but they were really far more than that. Far more than that. I, they... Um, form in 1860s, you know, as a kind of blue-collar version of the Masons. I mean, a lot of these workers were in the Sonic Lodges anyway, so they knew the experience of this bonding that Masons have, which is really quite extraordinary, and the rituals and handshakes and the sense of brotherhood and the sense of, I don't know a lot about the Masons, but I think they see themselves as do-gooders, you know, as people who want to improve the community. Uh, so the Knights of Labor adopted a lot of that for their purposes, which was to um, unify different groups of workers and and to um, use that unity to build a movement that would um, create a new economy. They were they weren't revolutionaries. They weren't socialists by and large. The head of the Knights, Terence Powerly, was a Catholic, uh, but they wanted to take the high road toward change. Uh, they wanted to persuade a society that cooperation in the economy would be better than competition. So their goal was uh, to create what they call the cooperative commonwealth, uh, where there wouldn't be any armors and swifts, uh, but workers would be cooperatively operating their own industries and shops. Uh, but within the capitalist system, I mean, they weren't, they weren't trying to uh, take people's property away. They just wanted to make the case that there was a better way for the economy to be organized. And in, in the 1880s, an enormous number of Americans uh, agreed with them. <laughs> uh, the Gilded Age was a sort of out, outrageous time when 
competitive capitalism was actually not producing competition, but was producing monopolies. And people were extremely antagonistic toward these big corporate monopolies. It's a little bit like what Bernie Sanders is tapping now, except much, much broader. And it wasn't college kids. It was working people and small town folks. And so the Knights capture that spirit and they help to create it. They have some very uh, good organizers, including Albert Parsons. And they sort of incorporate the eight-hour demand, the eight-hour system as uh, as their goal. A curious group because they don't believe in strikes or boycotts. They don't really see the employer as the enemy. They don't want to create class hatred. They want to take the high road and uh, persuade people that there's there's another way to, to do economics, another way to for the government to help create cooperation. They were also extremely disgusted with the corruption of the old party system. They believe that party politics and the state house in Washington was utterly corrupt and utterly ineffective and easily bribed and bought by the special interests. So so they were loath to get involved in that kind of politics. They wanted to create instead a social movement that would kind of avoid all those politicos. <laughs> So you just mentioned the Knights of Labor and their disgust for the corruption and heavy-handedness of the government. The city of Chicago has been long known as a hotbed of corruption. What did the city government try to do to quell the labor movement at this time? Well, at first the authorities in Chicago are fairly tolerant but of, of dissent and of labor protest and radicalism, but that, that changes in 1867 when the the eight-hour law is, is defied. And then things get really, really nasty in the, during the Great Depression of the 1870s. And you have uh, a case where the police uh, shoot, kill people. I mean, it's uh, not <laughs> dissimilar to what we're experiencing today, except the victims were white. And so they used the police. You know, they used police, which wasn't terribly effective because the police were very uh, unprofessional and uh, corrupt. And some some of them also came from those working class communities, and were somewhat sympathetic to the workers. So they had a uh, the authorities, the elected officials, the important employers were frustrated that the police weren't more effective, and they would hire private agencies like the Pinkertons to protect their their property. So that was another way they did it. They also used, they built armories and created militias to try to intimidate workers. Um, then, then we get to 1885 and we see the Chicago police becoming a much more, much larger organization. I mean, maybe a thousand patrolmen and um, led by some very determined, very tough, brutal officers who attack demonstrations and who shoot workers at the McCormick plant and kill them. And then, and then they march into Haymarket on the evening of the bombing, uh, even though the mayor, Carter Harrison, told the police captain to go home and dismiss the, the policeman. It's 176 officers, uh, patrolmen, march into the square and the bomb explodes and, and, and the rest, uh, we, we know something about the so-called Haymarket riot occurs. So um, I guess the answer is mainly they relied on the police, but the um, employers actually created their own militia as well. 
Can you talk about the weeks that led up to the Haymarket riot? Who were the, the targets of the protests? Well, the employers. I mean, in, in beginning in the previous, all through the 1880s, the um, Knights of Labor were making great strides in, in recruiting workers to their program. And they were diverse. You know, there were lots of immigrants, even women. In fact, one of the leaders of the uh, Knights in Chicago, I think her name was Rogers, was a housewife. And they, they welcomed housewives into the organization because they were productive laborers as well. And then they revived the eight-hour movement. Parsons, Albert Parsons, who by then is a social revolutionary, is part of that attempt to bring back the eight-hour movement as, as, as a reality. And then a new organization appears called the Federation of Trade Unions, this is a, an organization that will later become the American Federation of Labor. And these guys uh, are, are not at all uh, in favor of the way the Knights have been organizing. Uh, they believed in strikes. They believed in economic force, nonviolence, but they believed in leverage on the shop floor so that if they could take small employers to task, they could shut down somebody's shop and force the employer to deal with the union. Uh, they were very, also very suspicious of politics, but they were trade unionists. They were known then as trade unionists. They were even more enthusiastic about the eight-hour day than the Knights were. So both of these movements are moving towards some kind of moment when the eight-hour system can be implemented. And into that mix in Chicago, there's another a third group, is called the International Working People's Association. And those are the socialists and anarchists led by Parsons and August Bees and men who will later be accused of throwing the bomb or of, or of abetting the bomber. And, and so all of these forces come together around the notion that on May 1st, 1886, workers will simply refuse to work under the 9, 10, 12, 30. Bakers, bakers work 17 hours a day. So this was, um, so we're just not, we're simply not going to work more than eight hours. It's going to be a stoppage. And this came out of their belief that passing a law for eight hours was futile. They had done this and had been defied uh, by the employers. So they were going to strike. They were going to strike until the employers conceded to eight hours. And they were having some success. They were May 1st, uh, May 2nd. Employers were conceding either to eight or nine hours. It was a very peaceful movement. The anarchists were involved, but no one was uh, creating any violence because they felt like they were winning. You know, it was uh, this community in, in Chicago, middle-class people, uh, were, the mayor were all kind of in, in favor of this and uh, the eight-hour thing. And so things go badly, though. On, and you'll have to just check the dates in my book. But I think it was uh, May 3rd where there's this confrontation at the McCormick Works and uh, the police kill a couple of strikers. So these are the events that kind of change history. It's like Ferguson, you know, <laughs> Missouri, where some kind of uh, slaying by the police provokes a, a reaction. And uh, August Spies was there, anarchist, and was giving a speech. And so after he saw this, he rushed down to his newspaper office in Chicago, downtown, and he um, published this uh, famous circular uh, saying, gather at the Haymarket Square 
and I think it was the next night, was it May 4th? Yes, correct, May 4th. So, so Spies calls for a rally uh, against this act of police brutality in the Haymarket Square, and, and um, some of the leaflets have the words, working men, arm yourselves and be prepared for anything, something to that, words to that effect. So this was later taken to mean that violence was intended, but in fact, the rally itself was very peaceful, and people were starting to drift away because it was raining, uh, and that's when the police marched in, and then, then the, that's when the bomb was thrown um, so, you know, forever since, um, Chicagoans, historians, other Americans have been debating what actually happened there, uh, wondering and speculating about who threw the bomb. The anarchists who were speaking were accused, but they were, many witnesses said they were, uh, they couldn't have done it. They were on the speaker's platform, um, so it remains a, this remained a mystery as to who who threw the explosion. But anyway, someone did, and and it, and it killed some police, and it was a pretty horrific explosion. I mean, we're certainly familiar with all of that now, but but the American people had had never heard of such a thing in 1886 that bombs would be put in in the midst of police. I mean, the police were. Uh, considered the last line of defense against the great masses, the tramps and criminals and socialists and immigrants. And so when they were, uh, they were slain, you know, there were, there were seven policemen died. Um, it was a, a tremendous trauma for the city and the nation. And uh, someone had to pay for that. Someone had to hang, you know, on, on a very small scale, although emotionally similar scale, it was the feeling that you saw to some degree in after 9-11 is that we now have to find out who did this and bring them to justice, which of course means actually killing them. <laughs> that's how, that's how the, the press and the people of Chicago, the influential people of Chicago reacted to this. How did the police determine who to arrest? I really don't know. You know, I, I think they had their eyes on, uh, the leadership they usually do you know if you uh, if you arrest the leader this, ironically this this whole thing sort of recurred during the Chicago riots at the Democratic Convention in 1968 and the police were after the leaders of those demonstrations you know Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers and all these people and Abby Hoffman so I think their strategy is always well let's go get the so-called leaders and in fact you know, it was a social movement with a broad base. Parsons was simply manipulating everybody and telling them what to do. But after the bomb blew up, they arrested everybody that they thought who was German or Czech or they thought were involved without any evidence of it. Um, they were often arrested without cause, and they were often denied habeas corpus. Some of them were interrogated in very, very brutal kinds of ways. But they couldn't get anybody to confess <laughs> that they did it. And no one, no one claimed credit for it as you would, Al-Qaeda would today, you know. Which makes it curious or puzzling as to the, whether or not the anarchists were really responsible for this. They didn't take credit for it, uh, even though the, the, it's quite possible or even likely that an anarchist did through the, throw the bomb. But 
perhaps this person was acting on his own. We don't, you know, it's all speculation. Someone had to have seen something. You would have thought, there's got to be some truth out there. Someone must know the truth, right? Well, a lot of people saw a lot of things, yeah. So when this came to court, you know, you had wildly different testimonies about someone seeing, you know, a guy named Schnabel throwing the bombs. Some people said Spies threw it, even though he was, you know, what what they thought they saw and what really happened were uh, sometimes quite divergent. And this always happens in these criminal trials, you know. So you saw the assailant, you know, the lawyer would say, said, yes, well, what did he look like? And they described him. And he said, well, this, this defendant doesn't look like that at all. You know, so so there, were, there were all these things that came out of the trial where people were um, questioning everything, really, except that the governing narrative of the event, it was absolutely clear that the anarchists had provoked this, had planned it, had conspired to do this. So it, it really didn't matter who threw the bomb. These men were uh, guilty of conspiracy so it was a direct question of free speech. I mean, what, in fact, could you say uh, in terms of posing authorities or police or employers? Could you say that they, they all should be eliminated? And would that mean then that if somebody threw a bomb and, and a policeman died, that you too were guilty of the act? Um, and that's kind of how they were how they were convicted. I mean, the state's attorney never never made a case that any of them threw it. They said, well, they have knowledge of it. They abetted the crime. Uh, they were anarchists. We know that's what they believe. The possibility of their innocence was kind of irrelevant by the time they came to court. We will be right back. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. Can you talk about the trials of the seven anarchists? It was a pretty sensational affair. It was a big deal, yeah. It became, um, I think, to the surprise of the authorities, a international cause celebre, the trial in 1887, the trial of the century, it was sometimes called. Tremendous, intense interest in this trial. And the question of whether they were innocent or not, at first there wasn't any question except in the labor movement and the immigrant communities. Uh, the anarchist community, of course, were saying that these innocent men were being uh, railroaded toward the gallows. But, you know, the the uh, public opinion was so overwhelmingly hostile to these men that everybody wanted them to die and pay for this crime, even if even if they were innocent. It didn't, it didn't matter. They, they were anarchists. State's attorney said, well, we're not only conducting a conspiracy trial here, we're putting anarchism on trial. So in a sense, they were being indicted and, and charged and ultimately convicted in a major way for their political beliefs. And so the trial took shape around that prosecution argument. The defense produced a lot of witnesses who didn't see the defendants participating in any bombing. But it didn't matter. The jury was clerks and people who were... Not, it was not a jury of the peers of the men on trial. They were, they were not workers. They were not immigrants. They were not radicals. But as the trial went on, and it went on for months, there was a kind of drama involved in it. I mean, think of the O.J. Simpson trial, right? So people would say, well, maybe... Maybe these men are being railroaded. I mean, then so, and they, they were very articulate and very theatrical, these anarchists. You know, when they got up on the stand, they were very compelling in their testimonies and their speeches. And so pretty soon, um, some fairly influential people start to push for uh, clemency, you know, to say, well, these men, uh, these men are innocent and uh, they're being made victims of uh, the state. And this 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 uh, movement for clemency or or even for pardon became rather broad, and there were great demonstrations in London and Paris and in Italy, and uh, became an international cause celebre the innocence of these of these men who, who who are now seen by workers in other parts of the world, particularly Mexico, Cuba, Argentina, as the sort of first champions of the labor movement, men who were you know, almost Christ-like in their innocence and were about to pay with their lives for advocating eight hours. And so and so, the working class defenders saw them as being prosecuted 
and potentially executed because they were labor activists, not because they were criminals. So this, this produced a lot of drama to which the anarchists themselves contributed in various theatrical ways that I mentioned in the book. They were, they were very compelling personalities, and, and the press found them to be a fascinating group of people to write about. And that had the effect of, of humanizing them, because when they were arrested, they were all described as animals and beasts and reptiles and savages and wolves and all these things. But, but as the trial went on, you know, part of their wives would come and their children and or the men who were indicted were very good at public relations and, and, and denouncing the, the courts and the state and the police. And the police weren't very popular in Chicago. So they could try to turn this around and blame the whole affair on the police. So tell us what happens to them and how the event damages the social reform movement in years to come. They were, anarchists were of course found guilty and executed and there was a great outpouring of sympathy and outrage and anger among certain people. Influential people like William D. uh, Howells, the writer. But for the labor movement, this eight-hour movement that they had been promoting, the unions had promoting, really collapses and the employers get the upper hand and, you know, what had been conceded before Haymarket was withdrawn and um, people went back to working 12 hours a day. So it seems to me that if it hadn't been for the bombing, the union movement would have had an enormously important breakthrough. There's a lot of talk about immigrant restriction in our current political cycle. This was an issue after the Haymarket bombing as well. Yes, I mean, the, the whole um, affair, particularly the bombing itself, the death of the policeman, produces a red scare of uh, the highest order the first time Americans had ever experienced this kind of fear. And it was combined with the sort of anxiety about all these immigrants coming in. Chicago was on the verge of becoming a majority immigrant city. Just think think of that. I mean, uh, that's even today in uh, New York City. I mean, yeah, new immigrants, maybe 20, 30 percent of the population. But this was Chicago was being overwhelmed with newcomers. So there was that anxiety and the sense that there was something, uh, I, I don't know, um, dangerous about these people. So it, it, it translated into immigration restriction demands and uh, nativism and xenophobia. It didn't, it didn't produce directly uh, a change in the law, but the law was already becoming more restrictive as far as uh, immigrant admission. Uh, but not, not, you know, it wasn't until 1920s that the gate really closed. So for, for all of the Red Scare stuff that occurs in the setbacks of the labor movement. By the 1890s, people are starting to regroup and uh, the eight-hour movement is revived and uh, the immigrants keep coming. So the folks who wanted to use this, like the Donald Trumps of of that era, were somewhat unsuccessful. I mean, they wanted to really close the gate and they couldn't do it because even though this event was a... uh, disaster, a tragedy, um, and, and one that was blamed on immigrants. Not, not all immigrants eventually were held responsible for it. And by, by then, there were immigrants, you know, taking fairly prominent positions in society and um, 
For example, the governor of Illinois in the 1890s, John Peter Altgeld, was a German immigrant himself, and he pardoned uh, three of the anarchists who were in the prison. So it was too late. (laughs) It was too late to stop the immigrants from coming. And in fact, most employers wanted them to come because they wanted people to work in the stockyards. Americans wouldn't do that kind of work. And so they were Germans and they were Czechs. And, you know, it's very much like the Latinos today. People want to build a wall and keep them out. But don't tell that to the California agricultural industry, you know, because they can't get their crops out without these people. So that's kind of what happened after Haymarket. It looked like there was going to be this big change in immigration policy, and many called for it. But what happened instead was that the the anarchists were hounded and and investigated. The police were constantly following Lucy Parsons. Um, Surveillance was taking place. So that movement really disappeared, even though um, the police continued to harass people and... uh, The mainstream labor movement, however, reacts to this bombing um, in what you might describe as a conservative way. They say, well, Samuel Gompers, the head of the FL, says, well, we can't do this kind of thing anymore. We can't have people uh, organizing mass strikes. We can't have mass picket lines. We can't have confrontations with the police. We can't have speeches being delivered in which the police are attacked. You know, we just have to be... uh, part of society and, and be seen as responsible people, as trade unionists. Uh, and so for in some ways, um, the disappearance of anarchists within labor's ranks makes it easier for Gompers to plea for legitimacy and for saying, you know, we're really, we're not un-American, we're pro-American, we're patriotic. And so the, there's a curious um, Evidence of this, which is that May uh, 1st in 1890 was considered the international workers' holiday all over the world, including um, in the United States. Although this had nothing directly to do with the Haymarket affair, since they chose May 1st as Labor Day, International Labor Day, and the eight-hour movement in Chicago had begun on May 1st, there was a, a link a sense that somehow um, that great May Day general strike for the eight-hour day was what created May 1st as the help create the holiday. And of course, all over the world, that is still the workers' holiday. Well, in in America, as you know, um, Labor Day replaces May Day in 1894. And Labor Day is very explicitly a nationalist American holiday uh, which is not celebrated anywhere else in the world. And the people who were in charge of, of the union said, no, we don't want to be connected with what's going on in Cuba or Mexico. We want just uh, just the America first kind of thing. So that's evidence of how the labor movement, the official AFL, American Federation of Labor, reacted, which was to become more conservative and tr- try to prove its loyalty to the state and to the government and to to the American ideal. Um, and the anarchists were very much about subverting that. I mean, their, their uh, legacy does not disappear, however, because uh, Lucy, Lucy Parsons is still around, Emma Goldman is still around, I think Kropotkin comes. and there, There's a tremendous interest in them, even though they're not connected to a movement anymore. There is a small group, however, of uh, Italians 
uh, who follow following uh, a man named Luigi Galliani, and out of this group comes Sacco and Vanzetti, and 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 there's a whole other second book <laughs> about the Sacco Vanzetti story, which is in many ways a replay of Haymarket, including the trial. And then we have the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, who who are regard the Haymarket martyrs as their heroes and who sort of want to pick up the the mantle uh, that Parsons and Spees left, you know, and try to um, create not just a uh, union movement that was involved in bargaining with employers, but a union movement that was actually revolutionary and radical and inclusive and anti-racist and international and internationalist. And so the, the IWW made a good bit of progress in doing that, mobilizing the salt of the earth. And I think, you know, uh, a lot of that came from what had been happening in Chicago before the bombing. For people interested in learning more about you and your work, where can we point them? Well, you were you were kind enough to mention my book, Death in the Haymarket, from uh, Anchor Books, paperback. So that would be my... Uh, I mean, I, whatever I have to say about the incidents is in that book, and uh, many readers find it engaging and interesting. So maybe, maybe you're one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Very well written. Thanks again, Mr. James Green, for your time today. You're welcome. So after the interview was over, I thought a more detailed explanation of the night of the Haymarket ride was in order. So I'm going to summarize the marvelous account that James Green gives in his Death in the Haymarket book regarding how the night unfolded. So here it goes. Tensions in the city had been mounting as August Spees and Albert Parsons made impassioned pleas to workers all over Chicago. The day before, on May 3rd, police had fired into a group of strikers at the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company factory, These strikers had rushed the gate to confront their replacement workers. Two strikers were killed, and this really had riled up Spees and Parsons. At the same time, and unknown to Parsons and Spees, there was an anarchist carpenter named Louis Ling who was busy making bombs, at least 30, and he later claimed that he had no plans to use them for any specific event. He'd been building the arsenal on the chance that he'd need to use these bombs against the police at some future point. But the Haymarket rally on the night of the 4th was peaceful, at least at the beginning. Spees had left the pistol he usually carried with him with a friend because he had expected this rally to be peaceful and quiet. But he didn't know that six companies of policemen had already gathered at a station a half a block away from the Haymarket. 176 officers total, along with a squad of plain-clothed detectives mingling through the crowds. After Spees spoke, he called on Parsons to join him, and Parsons agreed, as he'd been watching Spees's speech with his wife and two children nearby. By that point, a crowd of 3,000 people had gathered. Parsons spoke against taking revenge through violence, but still told his audience that anyone who valued liberty and freedom should take up arms and prepare to defend themselves, or they would see their rights trampled underfoot and see themselves shot in the street like dogs. One of the men at the rally was Mayor Carter Harrison, who walked back to the police station and, as James Green has already mentioned, told the inspector in charge that the crowd was tame and no visit by the cops was needed. He thought that his presence 
would appease both the police and the crowds. He went back, listened again until 10 p.m., and then confident that things were under control, he went home. But the speaker after that, a man named Samuel Fielden, started to increase the rhetoric. Keep your eye on the law, he cried. Throttle it. Kill it. Stop it. Do everything you can to wound it, to impede its progress. One of the detectives went back to the police station to report on what had been said. In the meantime, a storm had begun approaching, darkening the skies, and an increase in rain and cold sent most of the crowd away, including Parsons and his family. Only 500 or so remained to hear the last few words in Fielden's speech. Just as he was finishing, a column of policemen began their approach, marching through the remaining crowd, stretched across the street. I command you in the name of the people of the state of Illinois to immediately and peaceably disperse. But we are peaceable, said Fielden. All right, we will go, replied the inspector. Then the bomb came, seemingly out of nowhere. There was a hissing noise, and one of the police lieutenants named Stanton, a veteran of the Union Army, recognized the sound immediately. Look out, boys. For God's sake, there is a shell. But there was no time for the men to react. The bomb detonated, sending shrapnel into their ranks. Then all hell broke loose. The police, in panic and confusion, pulled out their revolvers and started firing without aim, shooting both people in the crowd and each other. In later testimony, some of the policemen claimed that they heard Fielden say, Here come the bloodhounds. You do your duty and I'll do mine. Other officers said they saw men in the crowd pull out guns and open fire on the policemen in what was an obvious ambush. But three businessmen testified that there was no such reaction to the people in the Haymarket audience. The accounts after the bomb exploded very wildly, depending on the witness. And after the trials are complete, seven men, including Spees, Parsons, who again had left the rally a half an hour earlier, Fielden, and the bomb maker, Louis Ling, among others, were sentenced to die by hanging. Louis Ling, the day before the execution, had a bomb smuggled into his cell and committed suicide after detonating it himself. Both Parsons and Spees were executed the day after Ling committed suicide. Samuel Fielden, the final speaker before the explosion at Haymarket, was also sentenced to die, but he pled for clemency, and his sentence was commuted to life in prison, and he was eventually pardoned. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Tomorrow.